This is the Home Pro Success Podcast, bringing you interviews with today's home improvement leaders and trades business game changers. Tune in to get actionable insights to grow your own business. Here's your host, Corey Phillip. Well, hey there. Welcome to another awesome episode of the Home Pro Success Show. Joining me on the show today, I've got Louis Bruno, the founder and president of Bruno Total Home Performance. When it comes to growing a trades business, this guy knows a thing or two, as you'll see. We get into talking about how he runs a team of over 160 people. That's a lot of people coming to work each day and coming to work for you. No easy task. He shares some great insight on that. The systems that you need to establish when you start hiring people the Bruno Total Home training process that he uses, and what an attractive compensation and benefits package looks like. Let's jump into it. Lewis, man, welcome to the show. Yeah, hey, Corey, man. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, Lewis has been a close friend of mine for the last couple years, and he's also started his company, an AC company predominantly. Well, now they've expanded to do other home services. Back in 2012, right around the same time I was starting my company, Gulf Coast Aluminum. So oddly coincidence, Lewis and I connected a couple years ago, and since then, I've seen him grow his business just from nearly nothing, a little small acorn, into what it is today. It's something extremely huge, and the growth of his business far, far surpasses mine and his business might be one of the largest in his trade which is AC and home services so Lewis why don't you give us a little bit on your background how you got started on the business and where you are today yeah Corey glad to man the story of Bruno's total home is just as much a story as about the company as it is about me and so I started doing air conditioning at 17 years old right out of high school and in high school I started playing baseball at 13 years old as a freshman And that's really where I found this just crazy urge to win and just be the best. And so through that, you know, I spent the first two years, I really couldn't hit the ball, period. I had a good arm. I was fast, could run anything down in center field, but I couldn't hit. And four years worth of high school, towards the end there, I ended up being a power hitter and power hit to the gaps and do a lot of things, but I ended up getting hurt. And so my junior year... I pulled my hamstring, was committed to play locally to college, and I uh, pulled my hamstring and went in to see their trainer, and they cleared me to play and said, just make sure you ice and stretch, and the next game I pulled it off the bone and really couldn't walk, barely run after about 12 months. And so that kind of put a certain resilience in me that I still wanted to play, still wanted to win, and I graduated high school in 2006, and as I graduated high school, the only opportunities I left on the table was my injury was to play junior colleges. And at that point I would have had the red shirt and then rehab for a full year and work two jobs because my parents, it's 2006 and my parents were some of the first people I knew affected by the adjustable rate mortgages. They didn't have a job. They were self-employed and basically they were continuing to buy rental properties and take mortgages out. And then when the rates started ballooning, they started slowly losing properties. By the time I graduated, the only property we had left was my house. And that was going into foreclosure. So we weren't going to have much. Uh, I wasn't going to have much support from a financial perspective. And so that was pretty daunting, but I was down to do it for my love of baseball. And I saw a truck driving by and I had a few friends that worked summer jobs doing AC and heard they did really well. And so a truck driving by that said, now hiring will train and called the number and after showing up for about two or three weeks, 
uh, trying to force an interview. They hired me because they had a big roofing job. And so I started doing air conditioning at 17. Wow, man, that is incredible. It's almost, I hate to say this about the injury because I know firsthand about injuries in athletics, but it was almost a blessing disguise. It kind of put you into the position to what would be, I guess, essentially the launch pad to where you are now. Yeah. Hey, man, look, Steve Jobs said you connect the dots looking back, not forwards. And, you know, at the time when I got hurt, I also, that put me in a specific mental state where, where I still wanted to play and I still wanted to focus on that. But that gave me a lot more free time. And I probably wasn't hanging out with the specific right crowds and got in a little bit of trouble at that point. But, you know, all I wanted to do was play baseball. And I was devastated. You know, I had dreams of playing professional baseball, playing college baseball. I'd already had associated, which I know a lot about human psychology now, having to grow and be a business owner and leader, motivator, influencer in my business. You know, looking back at it now, you know, all the things that I had associated with success to that point at a 17-year-old in my life just came kind of crashing down all at once. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been a strong moment, a life-changing moment there. So at this point, you're working for the AC company that you had started with at 17. How long did you work for them? And when did you know it was time to step out on your own and do your own thing? Great question. So I started working for them at 17, July 7th, 2006. And I was making about $400 cash a week and still living at home. And, and $400 cash a week at the time was good. It was great. And I had no bills. And so that summer I spent on a re-roof job here in Naples, Florida, where there was a roofing company doing the tear off and my company had been hired to uninstall the air conditioning units. And then after the roofers got the new hurricane stands down and, and got the new roofing material down, we would come back and put the AC units back, but we would pick up the benefit of all of the old units most likely getting replaced. So we put a special together for the residents and I don't know, we got 20 or 30 replacements out of it. So I learned how to install the air conditioning units at the same point. And at the end of the summer, they basically, I was going to be staying local, redshirting, playing baseball. At the end of the summer, we ended up, the owner ended up offering me a job to stay on full time. And I had saved some money, two or 3,000 bucks, but now my parents were officially losing the house. So if you sprinkle in the possibility of having to move out and pick up a rent payment, I didn't save enough. And I still couldn't really run. And rehab still said, you're about six months away. And so I decided to take that first cliche semester off and save more money. The owner had offered me a full-time role. And after about two months in September, I had the skill set. I had grown the skill set to install air conditioning units. And the piece rate paid to install air conditioning units at the time in that company was about 500 bucks. And we had a unit to put in every day. So 17 years old, now I go from making $400 a week to being able to make $2,000 a week by getting the jobs done. And so I did that for that first semester and saved about 27,000 bucks. And naturally at the end of the year, the owner said, Hey, you pretty advanced in the AC side of things, installing them. You know, why don't you continue installing? Let's hire a replacement installer, but I'd like to teach you sales and service because during, during those installs, I kind of grew a knack for selling ancillary products while I was there doing the job. And so the owner would, give me 50% of whatever I sold, which looking back at it now was a godsend because none of my guys get 50% of any ancillary parts. They, right. And so that year they would, that was their 10th year in business. And that year we would finish with $440,000 in revenue. 
So they're pretty, they were a small company at that time. And since then, I mean, well, how many years did you keep working for them until you jumped off on your own? Yeah, I worked for them, helped them grow the business. My last year with them was 2012. They would do about 3 million. So I helped them grow from 440,000 to 3 million. He had no advertising budget. So we grew completely organic word of mouth, reverse engineered the customer. That is extremely strong organic growth, word of mouth, or, you know, cross-selling, upselling, basically, you know, increasing revenue without picking up any advertising. That's powerful. Yeah, it was exciting. It was an exciting time. I got to learn the business from a very grassroots, bootstrapped, organic way. And and it's one of those things that I can fall back on today because now we do have an advertising budget with my company. And in the coming 12 months, we do have a run rate of somewhere between 30 and 40 million. And, and so I know that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, that I know I can grow, build, retain a business without advertising and bootstrapping it along. And so 2007 was my first official year with them in service. And we would do 680,000 in 2007, 2008, we would grow to a million. I was running a small service team then from a sales perspective, and there was a service manager from a technical perspective. And then eight, nine, 10 would be all growing years. 2011, I got my contractor's license and they leased it from me for 1500 bucks a month. And, you know, as a 21, 22 year old kid at that point, I was making $150,000 or more. Great compensation, minimal bills, but I had spent every dollar of it because I had no plans on ever working anywhere else. I loved what I did and I'd never had money growing up. You know, my dad was addicted to crack and my mom was an alcoholic. And so there was never much money going around. And at the age of seven, my mom remarried a European, a European guy that was not very spendthrift. And so he reserved his money and he lived a very reserved lifestyle and raised my two sisters and I in more of a Montessori type approach, figure it out versus get any help from anybody, including my mom. And so, you know, growing up, we didn't have disposable money. And so it was the first time in my life I had money and I made great money and spent a lot of it, you know, gifts, cars, toys. And in 2011, I had kind of realized that, shoot, you know, I was seeing the cycle of technicians that were coming in being 45, 50, 55 years old. I was seeing them come in and go. I was seeing them come in and have to work really, really, really hard to earn a living that they were earning. I was making the same, if not more than some of them at 22. And I'm like, kind of seeing what my future held for me through vicariously what their lives were like. And I'm like, man, there's got to be more to this. I want to be better. I want to be greater. You know, let me start talking to the owners about buying 10% of the company. And so I started talking about buying 10% of the company and the owner naturally, operator owner naturally didn't want me to leave. And so for that year, 2011, he said, yeah, 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 we'll work out the details. I was like, look, no details to work out. Name a price. I'll pay you out of my paycheck. I'll give you cash. Like I'll, I've got some money saved, but I really didn't. I just was trying to get a number out of them. Negotiations don't start until you get a no. And so for that year, 2011, he kind of led me along and said, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. And then January 1st, 2012, I had my employment meeting with him and his wife. And I told him, look, I want to buy 10% of the company. Where do we stand? I'll pay your price. And his wife told me, look, we're not building this company for your future. We're building it for our kids. And I said, great, no hard feelings. Thanks for telling me. But then 2012, I knew that I had to start my own company. But you understand Southwest Florida was arguably the worst market hit from a foreclosure perspective in the Great Recession in the country, arguably only worse was Las Vegas. 
And so Cape Coral was the number one foreclosure area. And so now I'm talking about writing a business plan, having saved nothing to that point and starting a business during the peak, not the peak, but probably the worst time. Yeah, certainly in a difficult time to be starting a trades business then. It wasn't... It wasn't all dandelions and fairy tales, you know what I mean, in the, in the uh, trades at that time. A lot of economic kind of turmoil still going on. And so, yeah, so I turned to my notice September 2012 after I had written my business plan. The first thing that I did, I gave 90 days notice. First thing that I did was form a board of informal advisors, six super successful business people that were local, that I read a lot about, heard a lot about stalked them out, found out what events they were going to be at, found out what boards they were a part of, waited outside there, those areas. And as they were walking out, walked up, introduced myself. Today, I want to build the biggest home service business. I want to do it on a set of values that, isn't, that is unique to home service, do it based on service, customer service, service and maintenance, and membership sales approach. You know, Would you mind sitting on a cup of coffee? I'll buy you a sandwich. I'd like to talk to you about it. I'm in the middle of writing my business plan. I'd like some feedback on it. Is this something you're interested in? And the six people that I wanted, all six of them said yes. And once I got the first two, I was able to leverage their names into getting the others. So I started meeting with these guys, writing my business plan, and was ready to launch my business January 1 of 13. Awesome, awesome. So that's January 1 of 2013. Now we are right now recording this in November 2018. So six years ago, you were just a kid with a little bit of money and a business plan that would ultimately probably crumble and need to be rewritten a thousand times. Where are you at now? How big is your company? What does Bruno Total Home Services look like today? We just did about a three million the month of October. November started with a two and a half million dollar budget, and we're beating budget so far, six days in. But we beat budget in October by about seven hundred thousand dollars as a company. October, November, December are usually the shoulder months, and we're beating budget of, of November starting off. And so our run rate probably is going to put us somewhere without growing incoming calls, without growing closed opportunities, just off of our current level of performance, somewhere about $35 million in the coming 12 months. Wow. Those are some great, great numbers. And how many employees do you have backing that up? Because obviously that is just not a one-man show. Yeah, we've grown to about 160, 180 employees. But what I kind of find more ironic is to get there, HR lets me know every month, to get there, we've hired about 3,200 people. Wow. So early on, it was extremely high turnover. I had extremely high expectations. I wanted to perform, wanted to be better. There's nothing that's been good enough yet, including what I do on a daily basis. And so that kind of creates an environment that superstars kind of thrive in and people that are selfish or Gary V just actually posted one of his 4D sessions in full and at the nine minute mark, he talks about his growth from 50 people to 800 people and the businesses he has. And he says, look, the ultimately the only people that are going to be here are the ones that are here for the logo. And that doesn't mean I'd let them, I don't let them get away with being selfish, but that just means that they have an expiration date because I'm doing that for the logo. And, you know, I can't echo his comments any greater because, you know, out of the 160, 180 people we have, I'd say 40 or 50 probably at best are here for the logo and the other people, you know, it's impossible as the building, as the business owner building a business, not to have heartbeats or not to give variances to the specific process along that growth. But 
they have expiration dates if they're not here for the logo. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at this point, 160 to 180 people, that is a ton. And any, uh, any other trades business owners out there listening to this, they're probably bamboozled in their head. How do you end up with that many people? And how do you keep things running smoothly? Because my operation is a fraction the size of yours. And do mind you, my operation is still a decent size relative to your average trades business. And I'm looking at your numbers, 160 to 180 people going, holy shit, how do you get that many people? How do you get them on board? And how do you get them all doing what you want them to do every single day? So let's just go back. I mean, let me just ask you this. Where did you go from zero? And well, you've obviously been through a ton of people. So you've had to have learned some lessons along the way. How did you start hiring in the beginning? And how do you hire now? Like, what did you think you were going to do? What did you try to do when you first started Bruno Total Home back in 2013, day one, and you realized, well, not day one, you're not going to realize you need people on day one, but very soon in the process, you needed to start hiring to now. What What do you do differently? Because, well, are any of the people from day one, we'll say hypothetically day one, are any of the people from day one still with you? And what does your hiring process look like now versus what it looked like in the very beginning? All great questions, Corey. And so I'll kind of give you the color on it. Again, my entire mindset about building the business and the people has been, it's not why it won't work. It's how do we make it work? And, and I like what Gary Vee said so much about the reason why he keeps weak people or weaker processes around is because he's doing it for the ultimate logo, for the betterment of the company, because he knows one day he'll be able to act on changing that. And so... The way we've built the business is purely a definition of just the way we build anything. And the business is just an accumulation and a resemblance of what we do on a daily basis. And so when I started the company, January 113, I spent the month of December before that. I lived in a residential middle-class neighborhood, families, average age, probably 45 years old, 50 years old, and at 1,100 homes. And I knocked on every single door. Spent the month of December, knocked on every single door, had my notepad with me, asked a few questions. First questions I asked for, if you had to hire a service company, how would you find them? And I wrote down their most common answers. Generally, they ended up being four or five. Have you called an AC plumbing or electrical company in the last 12 or 18 months? And if you have called them, what did you like and what didn't you like? Then I asked, when you called them and you found them on those five sources, what stood out to you to call them over somebody else? What did you like about them? And then what would you, last question was, what would you change about that experience? And then after that, I gave him a five minute little presentation, elevator pitch. Today, just so you know, I'm your neighbor. I live three streets away. My name's Louis Bruno. I'm starting this AC company. I've got a business card here for you. Text me, call me. I'll give you a free service call. Nobody can be better than me. I've got no overhead working out of my house and I want to build the biggest AC company around. That was just when we were AC company and we started as Bruno Air. And so I took their most common answers and I went and looked at those platforms, how they would find somebody. And I reverse engineered what they would like, what they didn't like, and what they liked about the experience and found a lot of common language. And so what they liked about the experience, I started labeling in the ads and why they called the people they called over other people. There was common language there. I started putting in the ads as descriptions about the type of experience they would experience And then the things that they didn't like, I dropped off a line in the ads that said, don't worry, we don't X. Don't worry, we don't Y. And spent about 60 days setting that up and our phones rang off the hook. 
we did really, really, really well from a marketing perspective and a booking perspective and then the closing perspective, which I'll touch on in a sec. But to touch on the first employees, first three people I hired were friends. I think that's naturally what you do when you're starting a business because they're people that you know you can count on and you can trust. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters in business is will somebody say what they say they're going, will somebody do what they say they're going to do? And if they don't, how do they handle it? And that's the most elemental nature of trust with your customer and with your employee. And so the first three people I hired would still be here. Two out of three of them are, but I helped one of them start his own business and get his license to do it. And he wanted to do it, but the other two are still here and they've got extremely important roles in the company. And so our, as we started booking the calls and running those calls, it was all about, just like we reverse engineered how to get somebody to call us, it was all about how do we reverse engineer them to buy from us. Absolutely. You can't have a business if you're not selling anything. That's 101. I know my education is in accounting. I don't know if you know that or not, Lewis, but uh, my education is in accounting. And you know, you learn all about the numbers and how to put everything together and what to analyze, what to look for. But then once you get out there in the real world, you quickly, quickly, quickly figure out that you need to sell something to have some revenue, to have some numbers to manage. So sales marketing is always powerful. But I know a lot of people in the trades struggle with the employees and all that. So I want to go back to that with your first people, obviously day 60 people at this point, they're your friends. What did you do? What did you start doing particularly when you needed to hire outside people, people that weren't already in your network? And what does that process look like compared to what it looks like now? Early on, one of the members of the board of advisors told me, look, one thing you got to understand about business is if you don't have a job to do, you do have a job to do. It's to be out sun up to sundown looking for a job. And so I kind of use that same analogy in with people, right? So the first three people I hired were friends, but then I needed more people. I needed technical people. The first three people I hired had no experience. So I had to build the systems, not crazy systems. You build the most reproducible systems first. So I built the 20 point maintenance checklist and walked the guys through doing that, you know, 10 times and then said, okay, now you do it on your own. And so you develop the most common wearable reproducible hats first, and then you put that documentation in place and you train and manage back to that documentation for undesirable outcomes. And so as I need to start hiring technical people, you got to understand now we've got 30 air conditioning units. I don't know, 15 total systems stacked up in my garage, top to bottom and people <laughs> coming to my house to interview, right? Like, <laughs> While like people are, I've had two roommates at the time, by the way, while people are getting home from work and walking out with a gym bag and you don't really deliver any type of job security to 40 year old air conditioning installers and have two kids at home. I know. I know. I've thought about this. Well, I, I was in this exact same situation. We were running out of a three bedroom, two bath rented house. We had like four work trucks parked out front and we would conduct interviews like in the garage. And I used to think to myself, like, how are people actually taking us seriously? And now, you know, now that we're an actual established business, I look back and I'm like, how in the hell did people take us seriously? Yeah. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that our hiring rate was very successful, but that just means you got to interview more people. And so I chased them down at supply houses. I found them at gas stations. You know, I didn't have any money to offer them. I didn't have any incentives to offer them. But I just told him the vision where I wanted to go. And naturally, I probably appealed to a lower standard of employee, ones that were quote unquote tired of 
you know, the way that their company was probably holding them accountable. And so I hired the people I needed as I needed to produce the productivity we were selling and just hired. And then that is a good point that you just brought up about you were appealing to the people that you didn't want to hire. Because if I look back and I had a do over and I could go back to GCA day one, one of the things I would have done is I would have leased or bought uh, industrial space, an actual physical commercial space like we have now. And I feel that that would have helped us immensely in the hiring process and recruiting process. And I, I didn't know why. I've always just kind of had that thought in the back of my head. If I had to do over, I would do it this way from the beginning. But what you just said there really just kind of put the foundation underneath my thought. That's exactly what it is. Because the people that are serious that you want to hire, they're not going to take you seriously. So the only people you're going to get are going to be the people that ultimately are not going to follow standards or don't like following standards and don't like following formality and don't like working for a legitimate operation. Yeah. And that's who we got. And so to me, that's easy for me to handle because we were at a level where, you know, I touched, felt, smelled everything that happened with the customer experience. I was a sales guy. I had basically created maintenance technicians to create opportunities for find to find because they didn't know how to create them to find opportunities for me. And then I would go and sell the job and I would sell it a specific way and I would make the project scope and then we would have the equipment delivered to my house and I would have the installers meet me there and we would load up their van and they'd start the job and I'd show up. It just requires being that they're people that aren't going to specifically follow the standards I put in place. It just requires more energy and effort for me. But every time I showed up to a house, I created more opportunity. I would show up towards the end of the job to make sure that it was exactly the way I wanted. If it wasn't, I made them redo it. I didn't cut any corners. I made the standards. And the way I explained that to the customers, hey, look, I would prefer to do X, Y, Z so it lasts longer. So it's going to take an hour or two extra. I could send them back, but he's going to have to redo this part or do it my way or whatever. And whereas you think people, that actually might throw up a red flag for people. They appreciate that. They, wow, you're standard. By the way, while I was up there, you know, I noticed that your ducks were kinked you know, you called me out for an air conditioning replacement. I noticed that your ducts were kinked over on the further side of the house. You want me to go up there and take some photos. And they'd say, yeah, it's always warmer over there. And so I'd go up there, take some photos and come back. Be like, yeah, we could fix that. You know, those duct lines are kind of kinked and they're kind of bent now permanently. And so would you like to upsize them a bit and increase air? I'm like, oh my God, I'd love that. How much? And so I would kind of, I kind of learned something that we do today very successfully and that we continue adding value and optimizing systems. But back then, it was just me trying to be better, more efficient, more optimal at that overall selling strategy while maintaining the standards of the work that the guys are actually performing in the field. And I probably, I could think of 20 times right off the top of my head that I showed up to a job and made them fully redo it. But that just got me moving faster, right? I didn't want to fire those guys because we were still producing work and I knew the end result was going to be what I wanted. And I wasn't double paying them to do it because they're getting paid a piece rate to do the job. And so I just, yes, it was a little bit more control and a little bit more effort to ultimately manage that individual, but I got more simultaneous jobs moving at the same time. So how did you, I don't want to say enforce, but how did you make sure that the standards were followed? Because it sounds like you would set up quickly, you know, a checklist of things that needed to be done. And I'm guessing that you probably bracketed off your services for an AC replacement. This is our checklist for a maintenance call. This is our checklist for duct replacement. This is our checklist. Am I following that right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, you build it to encompass as many of the points of failure, choke points, throttle, bottlenecks that you can. And then you just reverse engineered and optimize it with every occurrence. So I would show up to a job and 
say, all right, let me see your checklist. I see this issue and then notice that that item didn't exist on the checklist. And so I'd add it. So you were basically showing up at the end of each project and going through the checklist that your employee basically just handed you says, Hey, I'm done. You're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm the, you're here. Tell the homeowner. I'm the, well, I'm probably, you're probably saying I'm the owner at that point. I'm the owner just doing the final walkthrough and you got your guys right there and your guy says, Hey, Bruno, here's your, here's the checklist. And now you're going to go through and actually check that everything they checked is legitimately done because I know this from checklists. If you're not checking them, they will quickly figure out that they can just check all the boxes and, you know, slide it off. Yeah. And I mean, the first 10 months I sold every job, right? The first $2.5 million in sales were all me. And so I didn't have any of, all I had was maintenance techs and I didn't let them sell anything. And so I already had a relationship with the customer. And part of my selling strategy was, Hey, great news. You know, alternatively, you're getting other quotes and they're going to have a sales guy come out and you're probably never going to hear from him again. And he might be tough to get on the phone. But the good news is they're not going to leave the house without me showing up to final the job. And so it was a USP that, you know, I had to compete on price. I couldn't compete on brand, couldn't compete on equity, couldn't compete on uh, specific materials, had to compete on price and I had to compete on me. I was what the company was and that's how I built it. And for the first 10 months, that's how we did it. I like what you just said there about how when you're out there selling the project, you're telling them, hey, not only am I selling this, I'm not the, you know, I'm not a sales guy that's going to just hand over the paperwork and walk away and you're never going to be able to get in touch with me again, but I've actually got to come out there and inspect it. You obviously realize the value and the power in that. Is that something you still do today? Because as I'm hearing it, that sounds like something I want to try and implement. Yeah, I did as long as I could. Well, not only you, but what about with your salespeople? Have you ever made the salespeople responsible for going out there and checking it as well? Yeah. So the current status, which I'll map through this whole story, the current status is the sales guys own the job all the way through. They're responsible for the paperwork transfer. They're responsible for final collection and payment. They're responsible for any issues that pop up at the install. And so, you know, in a period there when we were growing in the middle, we were moving a little too fast and we didn't have that accountability in place. And so naturally things get a little ambiguous through that build. However, the second that we started making them accountable for when issues, they had to drop what they were doing, even if it was other opportunities and go back to that job, they started getting way more clear about their paperwork and way more clear about setting the customer's expectations up front and alignment. And then because quality control is all that we have, final product, what it looks like, how it works after we leave, leaves a lasting impression on the customer way more than a business card or a TV radio commercial can do. We've got an entire division built out to quality control and it's a function of our budget and every job gets QC'd and we have a file, we call it an agent. We've got an agent that walks every project file from start to finish and while we're there doing the job, we're setting up the QC date, we're setting up all the expectations and we try and quality control the job within 72 hours of it being performed. And the result of that QC is a direct percentage of the compensation earned on that job. Wow, that is awesome, awesome stuff. And I'm thinking about this in my head. Do your sales guys actively use that as a USP? Yeah. I mean, like, is it something that they're, well, I don't want to say aggressively, but is it something that they're using today in their sales line? If one of the Bruno sales specialist or whatever you call your people that do sales shows up at my house to sell me an AC unit, am I going to hear that? Am I going to hear your sales guy say, hey, look, I'm not just some sales guy that's going to walk away from this. I also do the final inspection for this. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, one of the things that we do most successful as a company today, connecting the dots, looking 
backwards is just naturally the stuff is, I don't know, man. It's like 2013, somebody flew into my bedroom as a ghost and dropped in my head all these instincts that are just going to be there to come with a more desirable outcome at a higher reproducible, sustainable factor. Because there's things that exist in the world that I've never read that I didn't know. They just make sense to me that I see like, like one of my mentors, Roy Williams, Wizard of Ads, he is coming out with his Monday morning memo this Monday about does your company's performance task by task map back to the communication and your marketing. And that's just something we've always done. And so our process and the selling strategy today instills, we don't specifically have to use the words, this job gets QC'd. Every step of that process reports back to critical feedback and feedback and progress ultimately being so damn important to our consumer offering that it just pours and pours and oozes out of every element of them feeling that. And, and I'll describe that a little bit in a little bit about how from when the knock on the door, what our selling process is like, because as we built the business, putting our task by task operations up against our marketing, we have zero, zero opportunities in a mature business model that are viewed as a sales opportunity and a quote unquote sales guy goes. It doesn't exist. Not even if you call this for an estimate. If you call this for an estimate, you don't see a sales guy. And I've differentiated the qualification of that into service and maintenance because those guys don't earn a commission. Having more control over that overall customer experience. We'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I'm certainly interested in that. But let's go back to the employees and all that, because that's where we were at before we got off into the sales kind of side of things. And both you and I, I think, are very into the sales side of things and you know the sales side of growing our businesses. So naturally, we're going to stray off in that direction. But let's get back to the employees, because that's not something I'm good at. And you are incredible at it. You've done that. You've obviously built it up to 160 plus people at this point. What does it look like now when you hire people, right? So I know that in the beginning, you were going with friends and I'm guessing you were going probably with your typical advertisements to recruit people. You said also supply houses, kind of the network. And we, we talked about how you were kind of picking up the people that probably didn't want to work for a formal operation. So you're getting the people that don't like to follow systems and processes and aren't going to ultimately do what's best for your company. So you've got them. That's in the past. You're way beyond that. You're now this a huge company, I shouldn't say that, but you're much bigger, much, much bigger than any trades business or than most trades businesses. You've actually got a nice facility. You've got all these people. What's your hiring process like now? And how do you train them? Because what I was hearing, even though we didn't go into it, what you said basically without actually directly saying it was that you were doing on the job training. You were training everybody yourself as they were out there with you. And then you'd show them 10 times, run through the checklist, and then you'd kind of scoot them off. Now, what's your training process like? And now what's your recruiting process like? So start with the recruiting and then we'll kind of go into training them. I don't know if I'm specifically great at the employee side of things. You just don't stop, right? Even if you're bad at it, you don't have a choice. <laughs> the only way you get good at it is by keeping going. And the only way you continue to grow is by figuring it out. And, and so it's funny you bring that up because, you know, I would say, again, call it 180 people, 3,200 people hired to get there. So you get, do you guys hear that number though? 3,200 people is how many people you had to go through to get to that 180. Yeah. And I was going to say that I'd say the first 2000 of them are probably my fault, right? Like just being a sh shitty manager, having bad processes, having weak mid managers come in, having 
inconsistency in early, early on in paychecks, having inconsistency in reporting, just the effects of going through the growth. But since then, you know, in our current, which is our most recent version, hasn't been live, I don't know, more than 60 days, 90 days, but it's extremely strong. From a hiring perspective, what I've learned in interviews is, which if anybody even shows up anymore, holy smoke, <laughs> I think one out of 13 people actually I show can't up. tell you, I'll just kind of break off real quickly. At one point, we were doing interviews. We would Anybody that would apply, we'd say, come on in for an interview. So you'd get 30 applicants, invite them all in for an interview on a Friday. You might get five people that show up for it. And then we'd hire all five and we'd even ask them what they wanted to you know, pay, be paid or we'd even pay them a little bit more than what the advertisement was promising. And we'd say, all right, we'll see you, you know, Monday morning, 6.30 a.m. And guess how many people would be there? Not many, right? Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was in the glory days. But yeah, go on with how, how it worked out for you and your, well, trials and tribulations. And it sounds like failures with interviews. Yeah. And I mean, so what I've learned through that interview process is everybody's best day is the interview. Of course. Right. And so I've actually read it in what I feel like I do best in reading books is I can take the information out and actually execute in real life, not just dream about it. And I read it in a book that if somebody isn't poppy in an interview, they're never going to be poppy. I mean, even if they're nervous, their best day is the interview period. Like don't, it's only downhill from there. And so another thing that I've learned about the hiring process is after they're hired, right? Everybody has a, when they get a flat tire, they forget their wallet or whatever, right? Everything about that is, they may have a valid reason, right? But the second time it pops up becomes an excuse because there's other things that they could be doing to, to differentiate themselves against that and that, that outcome not to exist. And so in that, right, 3,200 people to get to call it 180, right? You pick up on a lot of patterns, you pick up on a lot of things that people say, like, it's funny, I was basing on an interview this morning and I was laughing to myself during the interview because it's for a high level position. And three years ago, four years ago, I would have interviewed this guy and thought he was great and thought that he had specific answers and thought that, you know, that he was been a good fit. And, and I would take people at face value in the sense that, Corey, are you good at this? Oh, I'm great at this, right? And automatically they'd be great at it in my head. <laughs> they'd be great at it. Right. And so a lot of the people that we hire, they, you know, they, naturally they think they're the best person in the world. They're trying to get the job, right? They're pretty biased. And so comparing that, my experience, remembering myself historically to that today, like you ask behavioral based questions and you pay attention to the answers. There's no right answer. So in the interview, you want to hear about how they define it. And I don't know. I asked three, four, five behavioral based questions. And after about a 10 minute answer, I would think about what the answer was. And there wasn't an answer. Somehow they didn't give me an answer, right? Three, four, five times. And, and, and that doesn't make him bad, right? That just gives me more information around it. And, and maybe that gives me more color on how to manage them. And, and I don't know, maybe another thousand interviews from now, I'll realize that player never works out, but I don't have that level of visibility or credibility yet. And so, and so through that hiring process right today, the best version I've ever had is every single sales guy we ever sit down and interview, they say they're the best. They say they're the number one sales guy from where they came. Right? They say nobody sells more than them. They say they've got the happiest customers. But putting somebody in a sales position is pretty risky because think about closing rate, right? 
The difference between somebody that closes two out of 10 and somebody that closes six out of 10 costs me a lot of freaking money. And so I want to make sure that even if I don't have the capacity or I've got to slow down my sales cycle a bit to keep my guys that are closing six out of 10 on those opportunities, it does me, it only costs me exponential dollars to send somebody unqualified on that call with weak management and weak visibility to their actual performance on that call. Because I could, that customer would be just as happy waiting till say tomorrow or maybe the next day, giving them more value points up front with one of my more qualified guys. So all sales guys start here in the maintenance and service division. I don't care, period, period, period. If you can't, because there's no selling opportunity in maintenance and service. But the number one rule for sales, my product isn't a widget. My product isn't a contact or an air conditioning unit. Our product is the way somebody feels after we left, right? What is your brand? Your brand is what people say in the room when you're not around, right? So like that is what we're selling, the way we make people feel. And so I don't need the filter to be, can they sell an air conditioning unit? No, it's actually pretty damn easy to sell an air conditioning unit because the majority of the ones you go to are freaking broken, right? It's not that complicated. It's not that hard. So what more importantly, I want to make sure before I put them on that risky opportunity for me as a business model, that on the most process driven, because even if you're a sales guy, if you can't follow a process, you're not going to work here, right? The most process driven department in my company is maintenance and service. They've got to fill up the most tedious forms. They've got the most deliberative process. They've got to do things and give, make measurements and take readings with no salesmanship attached to it. They're just reporting the readings back to the owner to then follow the opportunity coordination qualification process with the office to then get a sales guy out there. So then they've got to be able to put their ego aside for 30 days and actually get somebody who is qualified for that role to come out there. And if they can't follow that process, they're going to fail in my sales department. They're going to fail in my leadership training program. They're just going to not succeed there. And it's going to cost me exponential dollars by the time I realize it. So now alternatively on the flip side, if they are a top performer there or they get the process and they have happy customers and they can follow the process A to Z and they can take direction, well, then they're going to be superstar for me in sales because that's the process that we have defines the overall outcome, not them, them following steps, taking the readings when they need to delivering the communication in a specific way, delivering the options the way we want those options explained and communicated, either close the deal and or leave the deal in a state that a manager can call them over the phone and have a certain set of specific controlled outcomes that happen there so that we can either get back in the door, we can set a sale up for the slow time, because at the end of the day, what people end up feeling at the end of our selling presentation is they know they have a problem, they know they need to fix the problem. They just don't know if they need to spend the money now, later, et cetera. And if that's one of those three things or the final outcome, as long as they exist, you know, we could sell it over the phone or they just want a better deal or they didn't see how they can afford it. We can place them into a different set of options. We've got 20 million opportunities that exist in that scenario than if the person pissed them off with a shitty job. So you're really bringing them from the ground up through your service and maintenance division. Yeah, I mean, look, our process is, very unique in that all opportunities get qualified from a service maintenance guy. And those guys are paid hourly. So they can't sell anything but a membership. And they've got no, no, no incentive to sell anybody somebody something doesn't need because their compensation isn't directly exponentially increased because somebody buys XYZ package, right? They're incentivized for keeping people on membership and selling memberships. Now, in that, their first 20 minutes are the qualification point. 
right? They're taking the readings, they're taking the measurements, they're hourly, so they've got no reason to cut a corner. They're walking the attic and then they're reporting that back to the office. And if one of those five KPIs exists strategically that fit our ultimate business model, if one of those five things exists, they communicate back to the office, they communicate back to the customer, hey, XYZ exists, it's company policy, we create a field, a field supervisor's second opinion to come out, completely run through that process, confirm my readings are right, and then make any minor adjustments that are necessary, but God forbid we need to do a repair, they're the ones that can communicate it. And for me as the owner, that gives me control over the selling process, that gives me control over the communication model, that gives me control over the salesman's behavior, and ultimately, the guys that can effectively communicate that potential repair process, that second opinion process, if they can effectively communicate that and follow the process to get there, then they can be superstar players for me on the sales team. I like it. I like it. Now, what about your technicians? Do they also go into the service and maintenance department? You know, if I go down and I get a job at Bruno Total, it's, you know, Corey Phillips day one at Bruno Total. What are you doing with me? I know nothing about AC. You start in sales and if you're going into the maintenance division, you start as an installation apprentice. And so it's pointless for you to clean air conditioning units if you don't know what the different components are. You don't know how they're installed. You don't know how they should look. You don't know how one should be started up. You don't know how one should be wired, et cetera. So you spend however long it takes to get through that knowledge base. And at that point, you work with a varying different set of lead mechanics who qualify your work ethic, qualify your leadership, qualify your communication skills, qualify your promptness. And basically, the lead mechanic is the filter of saying, this guy doesn't work hard, he's lazy, he sits around, he can't, I have to tell him to do the same thing over and over again. And they, the lead mechanics doing the installs ultimately have the ability to, uh, not hire, but fire, reprimand, coach, lead, motivate, influence the installation helpers. So it's all going to be hands-on infield training. You're not doing any kind of like instructional classes before you send them out? Or are you just, you know, basically assigning them a lead mechanic as an apprentice and putting them out in the field on day one. Yeah. They basically attend all the standard meetings, you know, meetings install, which in there we go through classroom type training, but no, they're basically in the field. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. That is awesome. And how do you keep your hiring pipeline full? Like, you know, I, I already kind of brought up the point that we had a hard time getting people in for interviews and actually you brought that up and I kind of elaborated on that with my own experiences how do you get people in for interviews? Because, well, you've interviewed 3,200 people. Yeah, the truth is, Corey, I would love to think that I'm a wizard here, but the only way I've found quite effective is you just have to pay more. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, all humans care about how can this improve my family's life? How can this improve my life? How is this a better opportunity? And the level of person you deal with at the mechanic level generally only hears dollars and cents. And so we pay the upside of working here is double or 250% what they'll find out in the market. But what they quickly realize is that to perform at that level, we've got a serious, serious set of expectations, forms, startup sheets, checklists, accountability controls. And when there's any variance, because it isn't, their job isn't doing the job. Remember, their job is the customer leaving happy, fulfilled, feeling like they got what they got happy, good product, et cetera. So if there's any variance, I don't care if they're missing one photo. I don't care if a toothpick was in the photo. If there's any variance to the photos, they don't earn their max rate. And so it ends up being more of a 
above average rate, but not a 200% rate. And so we tie more accountability now. That being said, that doesn't mean that nobody, it's unachievable. No, our top guys achieve it. But those guys that are achieving that, they're also superstars inside that home and are tangibly delivering referrals. They're tangibly delivering future opportunities. They're tangibly delivering things that maybe the sales guy communicated with the customer said, hey, we'll hold off for now. Now the installer shows up and says, yeah, you really should do that. Not from a sales perspective, as the mechanic delivers a completely different customer experience. And so those guys actually do achieve and earn those rates at the highest level because they're the rock stars and the superstars. But the only way we get our pipelines full is the whole market knows we pay more. But if you come here and you're looking for a handout and you just want to be paid more because you're entitled, you're in for a rude awakening, first paycheck time. I mean, you'll know at that point, but you're like, holy shit, I really do have higher levels of expectations. And look, we're not perfect. We're building the systems to manage those systems now, but that's because I'm going after a hundred million dollar run rate business plan in two years. And I'm only going to break through our current level of management and performance by having the skill sets for myself and the mid managers and the depth of the managers. The skill sets will exist for us to be a hundred million dollar run rate company by the time we get there. And then we'll be there. Awesome stuff, man. Let's keep going on this because you said something there that has been of discussion. I don't know if this has been of discussion in your Facebook group. I know you have an awesome Facebook group there for HVAC and plumbing company owners. But in my Facebook group, one of the things that comes up a lot is non-monetary compensation. In other words, employee benefits. And what you had said there was basically the only thing that matters in recruiting and getting people you know, interested in working there is the dollars and cents, how much money they're going to make. How do you feel about providing employee benefits is it worth it? And what a lot of people, how a lot of people ultimately phrase this is, I think that most employees would rather just see a larger bottom line number on their paycheck as opposed to having, you know, non-cash benefits. What's your position on that? You know, it depends the parallels that exist, right? If I sat down my staff and said, hey, your compensation plan, let's say $30 an hour as an example, your $30 an hour, but your compensation plan actually with the benefits because we pay 75% health, dental, vision, life, et cetera, et cetera. Your compensation plan is actually $42 an hour. It wouldn't make sense to them, right? So it has to parallel. I'm not saying that it won't exist, that there's a tangible dollar amount tied to their, their overall compensation, but it has to parallel the overall culture of the organization. It has to parallel the things that you talk about as an organization. It has to parallel the events that you do. It's one thing to say, and we pay 75% of health, dental, vision, life. It's another thing to say, hey, once a month, we have a physician come in and do all your kids' physicals for sports or for schools. It's one thing to say once a month, the blood bus comes in, right? Because we donate blood. It's one thing to say, we've got quarterly performance bonuses. It's one thing to say that, you know, we do health surveys on yourself where we bring in an EKG or some other type of heart monitor that, hey, you know what? so-and-so found a blockage in the heart they didn't even know about, and now they've got to go see a nutrition, a dietitian, whatever, and, and, and change their life. But those are all the things that have to exist in parallel for your benefits to actually have a tangible value to the employee because it's not just them, right? It's their wife at home. It's their kids at home. It's daddy works at a cool place. It's, hey, you know, we don't have to spend $500 a year getting doctor's visits. You know, we can go to the three clinics the company puts on a year the overall culture, which is the structure we're all building now and why I'm bringing in the HR performance people development role is because for those things to matter and to be viewed as a part of the compensation, they have to matter and be viewed as a part of the culture. 
And until they exist in parallel, then you're just paying for health because it's cool or because you have to because they get the benefits somewhere else or you don't pay for it. And then you pay your guys a few dollars more. But then that doesn't overall, that doesn't grow or breed employees. You know, that doesn't give them an anchor to stay. So it sounds like you're saying that as a thriving and growing business with a sizable amount of employees that providing benefits and these non-cash compensations is something that you would suggest? You reverse engineer the market, right? Just like I found out how people were advertising and calling EC companies, right? What is it going to take you to hire the people? Because yes, us as business owners, somewhere along the long list of the totem pole of things we want to accomplish, that's probably way towards the top of the totem pole, not exactly a low-hanging fruit to achieve and overcome. And so you say, you know, what is the fastest way to create the best hiring, fastest hiring, highest technical quality person exists? And unfortunately, because the majority of the trades aren't overdeveloped, don't have strong cultures, but don't have that anchor tying people there, their branding is a dollar per hour. You know, why add the benefits at that point if it doesn't add value to the people coming here? Right? If it, and now if it adds value to the people coming here, that's different. Right? So our big thing here, frankly, in our maturing model over the next 24 months is how do we get the same levels of productivity or greater levels of productivity out of a higher reciprocal fashion training with a less experienced, talented person paying them a less compensation than they can earn in the market while having a lower turnover rate because they have a more greater value benefit, right? Because all those other systems exist, my divisions exist, my departments exist, and we produce at a pretty respectable EBITDA rate, right? Because all that exists, now we look at it and say, how do we have that exact same scenario exist in a a lower turnover rate, a higher reciprocation rate, a greater benefit rate to where we get higher levels of customer service type people here anchored to replace the non-customer service buying in people. So in other words, basically, you need, you need to kind of look at it in context of your own business and saying, do we need to do this to take it to the next level? Because a lot of us, well, we're all going to be at different levels here, whereas Lewis's business is on the very large side of you know, a home service or trades business. Not everyone is at that level. Yeah, but you know, at one point, I was at a point where you've got to say, you, look, you're advertising for employees, right? So you've got to look at what the other advertisements say and how do I add a little bit more value? Is it $2 an hour? Does that get me the better person right now? And then you build on that and you reverse engineer it. That, from- is, that is so true. Your hiring is a funnel. Going, going back to a buzzword here, but your hiring is a funnel. And it's essentially an advertisement for employees to get them on board with your company. So you have to understand what speaks to them. Yeah. And what are the alternatives? And how do you differentiate yourself from what's valuable to them? compared to the alternatives. So much good stuff there. Before we wrap it up, I want to touch on one thing here where we've kind of been going with this whole thing. I know a lot of people out there in the audience are kind of at the size of, you know, they've got a few helpers, few people working for them, one or two people in the office, and the owner contractor is running ragged, just trying to keep up with everything, trying to get everything organized, trying to find and hire these people, but they can't find and hire any good people. Lewis, speak to them. What's the next actionable step for a company that say, you know, five to 10 people where they've got the one sole proprietor that's really running the show and you might call it a circus at that point because everything is unorganized and, you know, just a total mess. They need more people. They need good people. They can't find them and their operations a mess and they're just going home every night, pulling their hair out 
and not falling asleep because they're you know already having nightmares about what it's going to be like to wake up the next morning. I know I've been there, and I think you probably have too. But what kind of advice do you have for those? Well, Corey, I was there for five years, and I've spent a lot of a lot of work on my business in the last two years. And you know, growing like that was insane, and I wouldn't change it because I feel like I've got the business education now that I is invaluable for the rest of my life, and I would have never gotten doing anything else. And I can recognize patterns and see things in really different contexts. So by no means am I complaining about that. But one thing I've learned in the last two years to every struggling business owner, there's only one thing you can do first, even if it's not hiring, even if it's not, it's, it's not operations, it's not checklists, it's not any of that. Because you can't have any of that without proper cash flow. And so the one thing that I see completely common across all size businesses up until the point that they get it or they get the coaching and the consultancy to do it, but they wouldn't have had that without cash flow. And so the only way to gain cash flow is are you priced right? And so you've got to determine how much money you want to make. You've got to know what your fixed overhead is. And the money that you want to make, say it's $10,000 a month, right? Make it bigger, but you got to start somewhere. Say it's $10,000 a month. And then you say, my fixed overhead is $20,000 a month, rent, vehicle, insurance, whatever you're spending in marketing, blah, 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 blah. Right? So that's 30,000 gross profit dollars you have to make to hit your profit target. Because when you're cash flowing and profiting, you have the money to hire better people. You have the money to pay for benefits. You have the money for this. So what, so what is your fixed overhead and how much money do you want to make? So that's $10,000 to make, $20,000 fixed overhead. So you have to drive 30,000 gross profit dollars based on your current level of productivity. So then you have to know what are your true costs of sales? What are your benefits? What are your, because you're not going to improve it if you're not measuring against the standard. So what is your true cost of sales? What are you paying your direct costs for field labor, sales commissions, et cetera? What are you paying them in employment taxes? What are you paying them in workers' comp? What are their benefits packaging if you have that? So what is your true cost of sales? And now you get to add back, you got to know what makes you money, right? Does I'll use plumbing, for example. We got into plumbing three years ago. And the plumbers came in saying, we can sell toilet flappers. I don't know what the hell a toilet flapper was three years ago. I never changed one myself. But got into plumbing like, we could sell toilet flappers, you know, uh, 200 bucks. And everybody needs a new toilet flapper. And it's the maintenance agreement item. And there's 680,000 doors here because that's what I tell them. $200 a toilet flapper. We could do one and a half, whatever, millions of dollars and $12 million in toilet flappers, right? And that's all great and, and dandy. but we can make so much money in 12 flappers. And so we say, all right, what's the gross margin 12 flapper? It's 80%, right? But 80%, you still make 10 bucks. Like how much can you really charge for a 12 flapper? 50 bucks, right? So how far do you have to go selling 80, so making $10 in toilet flappers per toilet flapper? So what actual, you have to know what business segment makes you money. For me, it's replacing air conditioning units, period. So everything else in my business has to support replacing air conditioning units. Otherwise, I'm costing myself money. I'm wasting my energy. My maintenance and service department has to contribute me replacing air conditioning units. So in that same model, $10,000 profit, $20,000 fixed assets. I got to know what my direct cost of replacing an air conditioning unit is. And on top of that, now I have my selling price. So if I do 10 jobs a month, right? Those 10 jobs, let's say my average cost of doing an air conditioning job to round this analogy out is 2,500 bucks. So I want to make 10 grand, right? I want to make $10,000. 
my fixed overhead is $20,000. So that means I have to drive 30,000 gross profit dollars. Now my, I got 10 jobs at $2,500 a job. So that's 25,000 direct cost of sales. So $10,000 profit plus $20,000 fixed overhead is $30,000 plus $2,500 times 10 jobs is $25,000. So my $55,000 divided by 10 jobs means my average selling price has to be $5,500 to make that analogy. And every single time I coach people, every single time I do this analogy with them, they're underpriced. And when they're underpriced, you are an uphill battle. Now, if you say my average price is 3,500 bucks, there's no way I can get to 5,500 bucks. Well, look, you're going to grow to be the level of the skill set that you are as a business leader, motivator, influencer. And if you can't see how to get your average price from 35 to 5,500 by adding ancillary value, by adding features and benefits that solve their problems, by adding reciprocal selling processes and strategies. If you can't figure out how to get there, well then as a skill set, you deserve to make less money or you deserve to run a smaller business or what? So figure it the F out. You can get from 35, in that example, you can get from 3,500 to 5,500. But until then, until you cash flow, you're not going to have the luxury of having the money in the freaking bank and the cash and the profit and the vendor payables to recruit the right amount of people or to wrap your vehicles or to give yourself a brand or to let your employees take their vehicles home to pay gas and create the market differentiation things to recruit people until you cash flow. You're gonna be chasing paying your vendors, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Look, I did it for five years, man. I was underpriced. You know, I'll give everybody on this podcast an example. When I did this analysis, do you know what my average sale price was? I have no idea. It was $6,700. Based on the business we had built, and based on our overhead and based on the desired profit, which at the time was only 10% when I did this analysis, do you know what my average selling price needed to be? Based on numbers, I'm gonna guess 9,500? 13,000. You had an uphill battle. I had to go from a $6,700 average selling price to 13,000. And I reverse engineered the shit out of our selling process. I reverse engineered the shit out of our customer experience. I reverse engineered the shit out of our selling process, making it most reproducible. I knew that people that could get into payment plans would naturally have higher tickets. So I reverse engineered, how do we support that selling process? A year and a half later, you know what our average ticket's been in the last four months? Maybe a little less, Matt. Maybe you haven't quite hit that mark, 12, nine? 19,000. 19, wow, so you blew it out of the water. Look, that's what you do when you constantly reverse engineer and say, how do you add more value? How do you add more value? How do you add more value? And in the last 12 months, as we've really hit that mark of average selling price, 14 months, and continue to exceed it. Now it's like, okay, so how do we make more? How do we get more out of employees? How do we get everybody rolling faster in the right direction? How do we, how do we, how do we? Holy shit, my entire life is way different with the necessary cash flow to do it. The business runs itself. I've got way less stress at $19,000 average ticket than I had at $6,700 average ticket entirely. And so when the owner is stressing less, all the managers have a little bit more free will. All the employees have a little bit more free will to do their job the way that it needs to get done, the way that it should be done, the way that things need to be better, et cetera, et cetera. And then they all execute and perform. And then doing that, we've created accurate measurables and daily performance metrics. And it's just a process, right? As you get to a billion dollars, you don't wake up tomorrow and have the billion dollar skill set. You build all those skills when you're building it that way. And so similarly, look, number one, if you're having problems as a business owner, hiring, marketing, advertising, selling, promoting, recruiting, period, it's all a function of selling strategy. It's all a function of cash flow. And until you fix your price based on what makes you money and deliver your focus there, all of your energy there, 
you're going to have problems everywhere. Good stuff, man. I can't agree with you anymore. You have to know your numbers. You have to know what you're pricing stuff at. You have to understand your target market so that you can sell more. So much was packed into that. And Lewis, man, in the last hour or so, there's just so much stuff we touched on. And it's just like an iceberg. You know, it's like the little tip of it. And I want to go off here and talk about this and talk about that. We're going to have to have you back on the show, man, because out of just this one episode, this one recording, I mean, I see a hundred different things we could talk about and we could keep going on for hours. We got to call it a wrap for now. So on that note, why don't you tell the audience if they want to connect with you, what the best way to connect with you is and how they can do that? Yeah, on Instagram, I'm the Lewis Bruno. Uh, on Facebook, I'm the Lewis Bruno, the real Lewis Bruno. Yeah, follow me on social media. Reach out to me and Corey, you know, I got nothing but love for you, buddy. And I hope you build a top 10 podcast immediately. And I hope that this is your most played podcast. And I hope <laughs> well, you know, we vacation no- together and we take trips together. Man, all the best to you, man. Thanks for I, having me. I have no doubt that this one will be good. And for those of you guys out there listening, I'll go ahead and link to uh, Lewis Bruno's Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all, you know, all the other million other social sites out there and whatever. We'll put all those links in the show notes. That way, if you guys need to get in touch with him or want to connect with him and see what he's up to, you can do it. Lewis, man, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.